You're listening to the Abramoney 3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. Is Bitcoin unstoppable? Listen to this special episode to hear the thoughts of Max Kaiser, co-host of Kaiser Report, Anthony Pompliano, founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital, and Abra founder and CEO Bill Barhide. This episode is a recording of a talk given during Bitcoin 2019 that took place in late June in San Francisco. Before jumping in, remember, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. This report should not be construed as advice designed to meet the particular investment needs of any investor, and any opinions expressed herein are subject to change. Neither Abra nor any of the participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. Investors must make their own determination, either alone or in consultation with their financial advisors, as to the suitability or appropriateness of such investments. Have a listen. What's happening? It's all good. Bill Barheit, pumped. Two of the biggest brains Ugh. in the space. We're here. The theme is, is Bitcoin unstoppable? Okay. I'm already entertained. Uh, exactly. Um, I, I, it's, it, is, it, is it unstoppable? Uh, I know on your notes, Bill, you mentioned that you thought there's a convergence uh, with Bitcoin and mainstream media, Bitcoin and mainstream finance. Yep. But it seems there's another argument here that is decoupling from mainstream finance. It's decoupling from banks. It's yep. disintermediating banks. The central banks are nervous. They're sending out their heavyweights trying to discredit Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is laughing at them. So is it more convergence or more decoupling bill? I think it's decoupling. I think that uh, it's... You, you use the phrase, I think, uncorrelated assets. Uh, I use the same phrase. I, I, I think it's the appropriate way to look at it. Uh, you can see the, the, up on the screen here, I think, uh, maybe the, the, you put it up, the, the price. Oh, I'm gonna go back here. Uh, this is following the, uh, the Libra announcement from, from last week. I mean, you can see what's happening. We hit an all-time high a few minutes ago, or, or I should say a one-year high a few minutes ago. Um, and I really think this is unstoppable. Um, we've got an all-time high on the hash rate, right? We've got a, another halvening happening uh, next spring, uh, which I believe has not been priced in. I'm sure you have feelings on, on this as well. Um, and look at this room. I mean, this is awesome, right? But here's another question for you. If it's unstoppable, is that necessarily a good thing? Because it would engulf the global financial system. It would displace millions of jobs. It would, it would be like a tsunami engulfing the global economy in a lot of ways, Pomp. Uh, if this thing, hash rate keeps going higher, price keeps going higher, it's, it's, it's like um, an, an extinction event for the traditional finance. Pomp, your thoughts? I think there's three things. So one is, um Bitcoin is just supply and demand, right? And we have to remember that a lot of financial assets are designed in a way where humans have some sort of control or manipulation uh, over them because we simply are greedy or we have self-interest. And, and the ability to manipulate or, or uh, control these assets has always been where power comes from. And so this is one of the first, if not only, assets where literally no one has control, right? One, one single party. Um, and, and so it's a very selfless type design, which I think uh, is misunderstood or, or, or people can't wrap their head around from the traditional financial world. The second piece of it is um, the displacement of jobs doesn't mean that everyone's going to sit at home, right? If you go back all the way to 
everyone used to be on farms, right? And then we started to have technology and then they had to pick up new skills. And then it was, oh, the factory workers are all gonna get um, you know, automated away. And, and we're seeing that there's just new skill development or new jobs that are found. And so I think that Bitcoin is the first and most important inflection point in like the automation of the financial system. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that those people are necessarily just gonna become unemployed. They're just gonna find new jobs. And that's the way of things, right? But, but just to riff on one thing you said, um, you know, looking at the, the, the Libra announcement, right, I think the, the halo effect as it relates to Bitcoin is that people are asking, what's the difference? What's the difference between internet scale decentralization, which is why we're all here, right, versus a permission model that basically says pay 10 million, you become a validator in a network, which, by the way, if you can sell that, that's pretty fucking awesome, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Uh, and so kudos to them for being able to sell that. But, but I mean, this is what we're talking about, right? Now, there's reasons why they had to do it that way. But the bottom line is, is if you want an unstoppable internet scale decentralized system, there is only one proven way to do it. Only one, right? And, and all that other enterprise blockchain mumbo jumbo doesn't actually solve any of those problems. And that's why I am convinced that not only is Bitcoin unstoppable, but the narrative of the last couple of weeks is creating a halo effect where people are actually calling me. I'm getting random mm -hmm. inbound emails from friends who have nothing to do with the crypto space. What is the difference between what they're doing with this Swiss association and Bitcoin? And, and, and why does Bitcoin price seem to be going up when the largest social media or social network in the world says they're going to do this? Yeah. And people are asking that question now and they want to understand. On, on the follow-up on the Libra question, so uh, I noticed in the media, mainstream media, and we do a lot of media, so I'm kind of sensitive to this. So Joe Kernan on CNBC, he was saying, you know, he looked at Libra really in a, in a way that he was forced to because it's now, he, Facebook is a major industry player. And when he looked at it, he realized not only that Libra had some shortcomings, but he could see by contrast why Bitcoin was superior. Right. And this has been the story of Bitcoin in so many ways is that once it goes up against traditional assets and people take a look at it, they come away thinking, wait a minute, this is actually better in so many ways. Yeah. So what's next after, uh, you know, is Facebook and is Mark Zuckerberg suffering from Bitcoin derangement syndrome? In other words, they become infected by this notion that they can beat Bitcoin. Well, uh, we saw no. Craig Wright has gone insane. Well, that's uh, Roger Ver has become a bad actor. Uh, so many people have been infected by BDS, Bitcoin derangement syndrome, and gone off toward Hades when they could be going up toward heaven. Uh, so is, is Facebook just gonna crash and do a major face plant? Uh, so I think one of the pieces uh, to me is everyone's missing the point of the announcement. Libra isn't very interesting from a currency standpoint. We have Bitcoin. The most important or most interesting component of all the announcements is Calibra, which is the wallet. And so the world that I believe Facebook will move towards is every user is going to get a digital wallet. They will put every tokenized stock, bond, currency, commodity, and all of your data all into a single digital wallet. And what Facebook's essentially doing is they're not going after a new world currency. They're going after the identity for the decentralized world. Where I think that there's a little bit of sleight of hand going on, I don't think it's intentional on Facebook, but it's just over time they will realize where the value is. All of those stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, and eventually that data as well, is going to be tokenized or digitized on the Bitcoin blockchain. 
right? If you think of this fully decentralized transaction network that we have, you can put all of these assets on there. We have somebody here who's leading the innovation of doing that. And so if Facebook's able to give a digital wallet to two plus billion people in the world and say, look, bring all of your assets, bring all of your data, put it into this wallet, and it's gonna be built on that Bitcoin blockchain, I think we enter a world where they're just an inflection point for adoption, yeah. but it's still built on the system that we're all here for. Yeah, right, well, and so you can speak on that because yeah, it's, it's funny you should say that. Yeah. So, um, do, do you agree? I agree. <laughs> we did it. Uh, we did it on Bitcoin. I'll uh, give you some perspectives on, on some of the things we're seeing. I don't want to turn this into just a presentation. Um, but we did actually reach out to, we, we launched this um, app outside the US. Th those of you who use Abra here, anybody here use Abra? All right, right on, some hands. Those of you admitting it, right on. Uh, and um, in the US, it's a crypto wallet, Bitcoin exchange functionality. It allows you to exchange between a whole bunch of cryptocurrencies and fiat currencies. Uh, outside the US, we've launched functionality to allow you to use Bitcoin to get investment exposure to uh, the top stocks in the NASDAQ. And so we've started reaching out uh, to users to figure out what's going on. And these users are effectively using uh, what we call crypto collateralized contracts, 100% of the Bitcoin blockchain, to invest in all of these assets and more. We have 154 countries already represented. Um, th this is effectively micro-investing. So if you want to put uh, $20 into Apple shares, nobody in this room can easily do that. If that's not clear why, you know, it's because the price of Apple is way more than $20. All of our users are doing this in a fractional share model, which is enabled by these uh, Bitcoin-based contracts. And you can see the sizes of the investments that we're getting, especially, uh, and this is a little bit skewed because the developing market numbers are, are much smaller per, per share. Um, and what's really interesting is that by far the most interesting uh, investment in the equity world for these users is Tesla. And we couldn't for the life of us up front figure out why until we dug in. And what we realized was, was that Tesla in many ways is an uncorrelated asset when you think about it versus NASDAQ. Yeah, there's a beta which it kind of tracked up until maybe a year ago, but now it's basically people who are buying into the Elon Musk narrative, which I think most of us do, I, I certainly do. Uh, and his future. I don't know about the price of the stock in the short term, but I certainly believe in the vision. And it turns out that we have a lot of users in Philippines, and you can see here, South Africa, France, Argentina, uh, that really believe uh, in this and had no other way before Bitcoin to make this type of, of, of investment. And so the idea that Bitcoin can enable accessibility and affordability for these type of assets for the first time Think about what we're saying here, right? This is, this is a, a concept that didn't exist, was, not, was physically impossible 10 years ago. The idea that you could take um, a decentralized crypto-based asset and use that to invest and get investment exposure to traditional assets is astounding. Okay, a couple quick questions. So first yeah, of all, go for it. this is, um, for, the first this time is for the first time so, global. So, you know, people so, living outside of the United States have very difficult time accessing some of these high growth situations in the United States. That's right. And, and so conversely, those people living in those countries would have access to U.S. investors in a lot of ways. Yep. So the, this takes the monopoly of Wall Street to be the hub of raising capital uh, and flattens that out. Yep. Um, and second of all, if it comes there's a like long tail in money sitting on the sidelines that's trillions of dollars that Wall Street wouldn't even know how to go find. If, if, 
in, in any way, shape, or form. Right. So when Procter & Gamble decides to start selling micro portions of shampoo because they realize there's 7 billion people out there right. and they get a penny on every small portion, right? Yep. So this is to apply that to finance. Yep. And conversely, you have almost a Kickstarter effect where a company like Tesla, which is, a, you know, it's already a multi-billion dollar company, but if it can grab the attention of these micro-investors times three billion, yep. they, they don't need to be popular on CNBC. The only proven key to wealth creation over time is ownership. That's it, right? Whether it's ownership in something that creates discounted cash flows that you can price or, or something else. What we're saying is we have figured out how to provide that ownership at global scale using Bitcoin in a way that's accessible and affordable and gives people complete control over their assets for, over their their first assets time for the first time in history. All right, so the Abra app is awesome. Everyone downloaded immediately. Let's go back to Bitcoin for a second. Yeah, please. Um, All right. You know, in this. the world today, there's like, what? I'm, I'm moderating. Um, there's like, right? There's like $12 trillion worth of negative sovereign debt. Okay, so th these are countries are issuing debt with a negative interest rate. You're guaranteed to lose money. The only reason anyone would buy that is to speculate. You're speculating that there's a greater fool. So when people like Peter Schiff says, oh, Bitcoin's only there for speculation, um, he fails to mention that there's $12 trillion worth of sovereign debt that's by def definition only there by speculation. And therefore, by extension, Everything that's listed out there in the world today is only there by speculation if the central banks are acting in this incredibly bad way. Two assets remain that are actually not. There are safe haven assets. One would be gold and the other would be Bitcoin. Right. Your thoughts on that, Paul? We talked about this on your show, I think, months ago, right? The central banks aren't there to manage your wealth, to preserve your wealth. They have no interest in, in wealth preservation. That's not their writ. Their writ is to manage economies. They're there to basically, in some ways, protect and build they, they, a managed house of cards. They're there as lender of last resort by their original design. They become the buyer of first order. Mm -hmm. So people actually go to central banks like you would go to a VC. Mm -hmm. so, and they're leveraged 60 to 1. And they're about to explode. Why? Because Bitcoin is providing safe harbor. So when will the sovereign, okay, the sovereigns, the central banks around the world are buying gold for the first time in major size in 50 years. Who will be the first country to start adding Bitcoin as a strategic reserve? A couple will become dominant. Your thoughts? I, I think there's two things. So central banks are pretty good in the developed world with doing what they say they're going to do, right? So in the U.S., we try to hit 2% inflation. We do a pretty good job hitting right around that because we're disciplined. What we see in the developing world is countries get in a lot of trouble and they become undisciplined, right? So usually it's a dictator gets in power, they realize I have a printing press, they start printing money, next thing you know, there hits hyperinflation and it screws everything up. I think what we're about to see happen, uh, I keep calling it, it's the perfect storm for Bitcoin. So in the last two recessions, central banks had two separate tools to combat these recessive periods. One was they could cut interest rates, and usually, or the last two recessions, they've cut them by over 500 basis points. Today, rates are three to three and a half percent, so they don't have 500 basis points to cut. So that tool is going to be available, but it won't be nearly as impactful as it's previously been. The second tool they have is to print money or quantitative easing. And so the emergency measure of quantitative easing that was introduced during the global financial crisis, now they're publicly saying this is gonna become the standard it is unlikely it will be as effective because we've kind of become used to it, right? So it's kind of a, a, a tool that's available, but again, not as impactful. 
So whenever you get a world where rates get cut and you begin printing money, all of a sudden you get these non-correlated assets that really benefit, right? Because it's just they're driven by other uh, drivers of value. The piece to me that's really interesting is this all is going to happen over the next kind of six to 12 months, right? So you're going to see interest rates getting cut, you're going to see printing of money, and it's going to coincide almost perfectly with the halving of Bitcoin. So you have, we're going to cut interest rates, we're going to print money, and we're going to take the scarcest asset in the world, and we're going to cut it, the daily supply in half. This is fucking rocket fuel for Bitcoin, yeah. right? Like, like, and so when I look at that, what we enter is, we enter a world where politicians are now paying attention, but they're not paying attention because of Bitcoin. They're, they're actually smarter than we think. They realize they can't shut it down, and so it's a fool's game to rage against it, unless you're Brad Sherman in California who says we should ban it, right? That's the only tool we have is to ban it. They can't shut it down. So what ends up happening is the prisoner's dilemma. If Bill and I are both central banks, and I know that if Bill starts buying Bitcoin, he gets an advantage over me, well, maybe I should buy first. Right, so it's a game theory they laid all out on the central bank level. Now, we've seen that from day one. The game theory has always kicked in. I think it was Charlie Lee who wrote a really nice essay about the 51% attack is not a bug, but a feature. As long as people think that they can attack it with a 51% attack, the hash rate goes higher, security goes higher, and then price goes higher. You know, in my view, hash rate leads price for that reason, because it plays on the psychology of the global entrenched kleptocracy. Look, Bitcoin today is a $200 billion asset. Right, $200 billion sounds like a lot until you compare it to Apple, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera. It's, it's pretty nothing. small in, in the grand scheme yeah, of things. Nothing. It is the most secure computer network in the world. And, and, and it's worth a lot more fucking than $200 billion. Yeah. What is that worth, yeah. right? Especially the world that we're going into with automation and all this stuff. To me, it is, it, it's comparing it to global money supply, all this stuff is, is one way to look at it. But if you look at it just as what is the most or what is the most secure computing network in the world worth? It's probably worth more than Apple. It's worth more than Amazon. It's probably worth more than gold. Where we end up, I don't know, but I think that that's the way to really look at this thing. Right. Let's play devil's advocate for a second. So, where would you think their Bitcoin is vulnerable? Okay. Like, I'll start. Um, the exchanges, the on ramps and off ramps. This seems like a point of vulnerability. Um, what do you think about that? I think Bitcoin is vulnerable. I, I agree with that. I mean, obviously, the users, we get a lot of users who come to us from exchanges because they've been hacked, uh, you know, they had bad experiences, they've had passwords stolen, and, and they realize that, you know, a non-custodial model, you know, it's very difficult to market a non-custodial wallet to the average consumer because they don't understand what I just said. Until you've been hacked, then you understand every word I just said. So, so that's, I totally agree with that. Um, the other, I would say, is the edge of the network, right? So at the edge, that's where we hear the nonsense from the Indian government, right? Where they do actually have the ability to put up a firewall or whatever you want to call it, or in China. So that the edge of the network, I think, should scare all of us because that's not a Bitcoin-specific issue. Uh, that's a, that's a, you know, a government overreach issue and a free speech issue that I think we don't take seriously enough. We don't hear enough uh, of a narrative around Bitcoin is actually free speech, and free speech needs to be a protected human right across the board. Uh, well, there's, there's a large body, right. You know, the, the cypherpunks say, you know, that essentially Bitcoin is code, code is speech, and speech is protected. 
Sure, but governments don't, they, right? And, and, and that's my problem with this. You know, I think um, the Oslo Freedom Forum happened a couple of weeks ago, uh, or a few weeks ago, and uh, I'm encouraged by some of the narrative out of there, but, but when, when we have governments calling for, for hearings on, on you know, AML and, and, and this and that as it relates to, to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, where is the hearing about how we're going to guarantee basic human rights as it relates to access to this technology? That's the hearing that I want to see, but that's not, you know, that doesn't get you, you know. Pressed. What about this? Uh, you know, James Lopp, who's a very well-known guy in the space, he made the comment once that at the next financial crash, uh, the bailouts will go this way. Uh, governments will be coming to the Bitcoin community for the bailout. Well, I mean, look, the, if you think about historically, there have been financial crises where individuals have bailed out the government or banks, right? So JP Morgan is a you know, prime example. But, but again, I think that what ultimately happens here is in the non-financial world, humans have already decided to throw up their hands and trust machines and algorithms over other humans, right? And I always use the examples. When you get lost in a city, you look on Google Maps, you don't ask somebody on the street corner anymore. When you want a music recommendation, you listen to Spotify, right? And it gives you a recommendation, you don't ask your friend. This is finally happening with money, right? And so forget the politics of this, but do you trust President Trump and that administration determining monetary policy, or you, do you trust an algorithm that you can audit and that you can right. see and that's transparent? When Trump says that the stocks would be higher if interest rates are lower, that's a complete... He, he's a Bitcoiner. He, he's a, he didn't even realize it. He is a Bitcoiner. He wants low interest rates. He wants us to just juice markets. Right. And what it's actually doing is it's facilitating and accelerating our exposure of the problems with a system where humans are driven to but make I, decisions. But I think the central bank model is probably a decade or so away from entering this positive feedback loop, which is headed towards oblivion, right? And, and if you think about it, in history, we, we pick on certain hyperinflation currencies over time, but the reality is is that every paper-backed money has eventually, every fiat currency has failed, period, right? And history has shown that they will all eventually fail. And, and, and the reason we trust the central bank model is, to your point, we simply don't know, or certain people don't know a better way, and so we have no choice in their minds but to trust the central bankers. And I think that system is definitely going to enter a, a positive feedback kind of spiral to the point where quantitative easing combined with, you know, insane debt combined with governments that are out of control combined with crazy dictators is, is going to undo that system, so, certainly within the lifetimes of many people here. You, you'll love this. I told one of our investors the other day, I said, the people who control the global reserve currency have always had the most powerful military, right? The most powerful military has always been the controller of the global reserve currency. The world we are going into is one in which the best defense is offense, and therefore the Bitcoin blockchain has the best military. Well, let me ask you this. It's if, just a non-violent military. If fiat money is backed by violence and hate, can we say that Bitcoin is backed by love? <laughs> love. Love Bitcoin. Orange coin is good. <laughs> I think we're out of time, gentlemen. Thanks so much for this awesome panel. We'll throw it back now to Naomi. All right. Sit down. Sit down. Oh
We're, so we've had a lot of questions come through on Slido, which is pretty exciting. So I have one question for you guys. We only have 90 seconds on the clock for, for you to answer it. Okay. But the question is, what FUD will the US government use to ban Bitcoin? Is it going to be they're using it to bypass sanctions or too much energy use or uh, you know, avoiding tax and they're criminals? What do you guys think? What, you said what form they would use to ban it? Well, I mean, do you think there's going to be an outright ban in Bitcoin from the government? The uh, government can't stop. In the United States, the Supreme Court has already opined on this. You can't prevent people from holding ones and zeros on a device in their pocket. That, that ship has sailed. We already know that. The question, is, the question is, what can they do at the edge of the network, the on-ramps and off-ramps, the places where they exert control over the banking system, the exchanges, um, stable coins, right? That's the biggest problem with Lira. The biggest problem with Lira is, is that, you know, Bitcoin itself has no knowledge of the outside world. I liken it to the matrix. That's why it works. Because the government can't reach in and make tweaks. Right? But, what, what, but when you have a basket, of a basket of indexed uh, fiat currencies, you're now trusting someone in the physical world. That you can control and stop. So I think that the narrative needs to be, look at the edge of the network, and where is the government overexerting themselves to the detriment of people's basic rights. That's, that's what bothers me. Great answer. Can you please give them a very warm uh, round of applause? Thank you very much. All right. Okay, thanks for tuning in to this special episode of Abra Money 3.0. There are more episodes on the way. In the meantime, head over to abra.com to learn more about the app. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.